kind of some muttering out there this morning as we went through that passage. This is a hard one, isn't it? Well, let me make it uh, simple for you this morning. The communists were right. No, I'm just kidding. So that's not the passage. That's not, it's not what's happening here at all this morning. But it sure is challenging, isn't it? Is anyone comfortable after hearing this scripture? I, I, I can't tell if just no one's participating or if no one's comfortable. But, yeah, oh, man, this one is tough. I mean, it is really hard because what are we supposed to make out of this? And especially in the society that we live in and with the way we view wealth and personal property, what are we supposed to make about all of this? And then what are we supposed to make out of the fact that Ananias and Sapphira died and everyone was scared? Like, that would really be an interesting experience at church, wouldn't it? If somebody came up and they're like, dude, that's not what you said it was at all. They die and we carry them out to bury them and another person comes in. They participate in the lie, also die, and the people who are coming back from burying the first person now have another person to take out and bury. Do you think that would be good for church attendance? No. No, absolutely not. What is going on? Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is that this passage is not primarily about our 20th and 21st century's understandings of how economics work. Okay, you get that? First of all, this passage is not primarily about capitalism versus communism or socialism or any other ism. And we need to be careful when we read this passage not to immediately assume that actually no one understood what it meant until Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and then people started to figure it out. There is a sort of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis might call it, a sort of uh, preference for the present that might make us think that we have special insight here. But really, I think that the isms, the, the communism and capitalism and all these other things, actually tend to obscure more than they tend to reveal what's happening in this passage. Just, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the isms this morning because that's not my expertise, first of all. And secondly, and more importantly, that's actually not what this passage is about, as I've been saying. So let me just say this. This passage does not rule out private ownership of property. It's just not there. Peter seems to acknowledge this when Ananias comes before him. Peter knows he hasn't brought the full sale price to him, but he acknowledges, didn't it belong to you? before it was sold. He doesn't say, it should never have belonged to you. He said, it, it did. It was yours. You had the right of disposing of that how you saw fit. Okay, so it's, there's not an abolishment of personal property that's happening here in this passage. I think we also need to recognize, however, that there is, and this is more to the point, a higher call for the material resources that we have than personal enrichment and security and stability. There is a higher call for the material resources that God has given to us than simply to provide for our own needs and especially to provide for our own pleasure. Now, I think that all of us want to believe that and live that. 
I mean, let's, let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt here. We would like to think that if we were, you know, multi-billionaires, uh, that we would be more concerned with how we raise the standard of living of the people around us, how we care for the needs in the world, than we would be concerned with having three helicopters, a couple of yachts, and the biggest house that anyone in our city has. I think that's who we would like to be. Isn't that who we would like to be? There's a lot of peer pressure in that question, isn't it? No, no. Like, I would rather have the helicopters. So. But I think we acknowledge that there ought to be a higher purpose to our wealth, however much it is, than just taking care of my needs. And I think part of that is built into the fact that our society has uh, largely grown up in the West at least being influenced by what the Bible teaches about the world around us. But also Christians don't have a corner on caring for the poor or caring for the people who are in trouble. Uh, if you know much about Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam, this has been a long time since I studied this, I'm pretty sure there were five pillars. One of them is the giving of alms to the poor. It was considered a virtue in ancient Judaism as well. It wasn't, an, it wasn't like Jesus came along and taught people how to care for the poor. There are other cultures and other peoples who have understood that this was an important thing, although maybe not as well outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition as inside of it. There are places in the world, of course, today where uh, maybe there isn't a lot of agreement on whether or not we should care for the poor. Certain worldviews, uh, such as perhaps Buddhism, say this world is all illusion. You know, and our, our goal is actually to escape this world. So the material stuff actually doesn't matter at all. Are you sick? Are you poor? That doesn't matter. You're supposed to try and see beyond that. Are you wealthy? That doesn't matter. You're supposed to try and see beyond that. In Hinduism, uh, in any... As a matter of fact, just about any religion or worldview that believes strongly in reincarnation, there's a sense of if you're poor, it's probably because you were bad in your last life. And in that sense, you are not worthy of help or assistance. That may not fairly describe everything that, that Hindus believe or that Buddhists believe. That's uh, one of the best ways to run into trouble as quickly as possible is to start telling other people what they believe. Say, so, well, I believe in this. No, you don't. No, you don't. Do people do that to Christians sometimes? People do that to you? Don't do that to other people because it's rude and you're often wrong. Ask other people, what do you believe? And have a conversation around that. But I think it's still meaningful and helpful to try and say, okay, generally speaking, what we understand about these beliefs is these sorts of things. So there isn't widespread, there isn't maybe universal agreement that we ought to use our material resources in service to the people around us, at least in some percentage, in some way. But we see something amazing in the Christian community, and it wasn't an accident. Okay? I want you to see that the fact that when they write here in chapter 4, they say in verse 34, well, let's go back even earlier, Beginning in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. There may have been legal ownership and all of that, but, but everyone was so concerned about the community 
that they said the best use of whatever resources I have is in service of this community. So they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I want to take you back to the book of Deuteronomy. We're in the Old Testament now. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, If you... We're all the way almost to the very beginning. Uh, The books of the Bible start Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's number five out of the 39 Old Testament books. And in chapter 15, this is what we read in verse 4. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. He says there will be no need because of God's provision for your community to have the poor. In verse 7, He goes on, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Now, in case we're hearing in that freely lend them a a sense of like, yeah, and make some money on the side, right? Take it. We'll open check cashing places everywhere. It'll be great. We'll make lots of money. You have to understand that this whole of chapter 15 is actually describing how God is going to treat debt among his people Israel. He says, every seven years, you will cancel the debts that your people owe you. He says, if you have lent money or or lent materials or lent anything to a, a fellow Israelite, You're going to cancel that debt every seven years. No one will be in debt for more than seven years. So this idea of do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, but be open-handed and freely lend them whatever you need is not another way of making money. It's another way of saying be generous with the people around you. They're actually specifically, God talks to his people and says, if it's one year away from that seventh year and someone's asking you for a loan, You need to be open-hearted and generous to them, even though you're going to lose on the deal. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? See, it wasn't an accident that the early Christian community was sharing their resources in this way. They were simply fulfilling the, the plan that God had for his people from the very beginning, and the Holy Spirit was leading them to do that. Let me tell you, in ancient Israel, they had poor people. In ancient Israel, there were poor people who weren't taken care of. In ancient Israel, there were people who were hard-hearted and tight-fisted toward their poor neighbors. But in God's community, when his people are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, there is no need that goes unmet while God's people have the resources to meet it. This is the goal that we are striving toward as a community. And did you notice that God doesn't make the normal provisions that we do? He doesn't say, make sure they're going to spend it wisely. He doesn't say, I want you you to make sure that you are uh, 
requiring everyone to work as much as you think they should work. He says, in your community of Christ followers, you are just like in Deuteronomy to be open-hearted, open-fisted toward the people around you. Okay, so does that mean when you drive through Mary's Vineyard, you get at the stoplight and there's the person panhandling at the stoplight that you got to make sure you open up that, that purse or that wallet and you throw whatever you've got out at them? Well, uh, no, I don't think so. We need a little bit more nuance on this. First of all, this is clearly within this community. They were generous toward people outside, but this attitude of freely sacrificing all that they had was for the good of the people who were inside, was for the good of the family. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, people will surely sneak in and try and take advantage of that, won't they? Right? People will see that, look at those people, they take good care of each other. If I belonged to that community, maybe I would be well taken care of. So even though I don't intend to really be part of that community in my heart, I don't really want to be a member of that community. I just want to take advantage of the resources in that community. And we're starting to feel like there are all these places for abuse here, aren't we? I mean, honestly, who, who here, maybe I won't make you raise your hand on this one, but who here is thinking, I don't know if I can belong to a community like that because I just feel like I'm going to get taken advantage of left and right. That's in my heart at least a little bit. I don't know if we can really trust God in the midst of that. I don't know if I'm really willing to have people take advantage of me in these sorts of ways. I've got good news for you where that comes in. The Holy Spirit helps us discern who is really a part of that community and who's just trying to take advantage of it. And it's a Holy Spirit thing. It's not just a due diligence, like I'm going to hear the six steps that if you take these, you'll never be taken advantage of. I think that's part of what's going on in Ananias and Sapphira's story. So now we, we come to Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias here in, in chapter 5 of Acts, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. We have on the one hand the good example, Barnabas. Joseph, he's a Levite from Cyprus, he gets the nickname Barnabas. Why does he get the nickname Barnabas? Well, the nickname Barnabas means son of encouragement. Here is, is the guy that everyone is looking to for an example of how we care for each other, how we encourage each other. And then on the other hand, you have Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. But unlike Barnabas, and with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself. He's not really bought into the community, is he? He's not really saying, we want to be part of a community where people are sharing. We want to follow Jesus with all of our heart and fulfill this Deuteronomy 15 sort of vision that God has for his people. The community that God wants to build. Now, there are a lot of reasons, I think, why Ananias and Sapphira didn't want to participate in the community that way. One of them is maybe a bit culturally distant from us. You see, in the ancient world, there was a system of patronage. 
Okay, you had a patron-client relationship. Patrons were people with lots of influence and lots of money. And the clients were people with little influence and little money. And the clients would go to the patrons and they would say, if you will help me, then I will tell everyone how great you are. And when you run for office, I will vote for you. And when you need people to back you up in the community, I will be there to back you up in the community. And the patrons, they, they wanted this sort of relationship because it increased their influence in society as a whole. They said, we are going to buy reputation. We're going to buy greatness. We're going to buy people's love by being patrons and by having as many clients as we can afford. And there is, I think, a sense in which Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, we want to be like that. We're not ready to give up sort of the, the glory of the world. We're not ready to give up the ways that you get ahead in the world for this utopian community that the Christians are trying to build here. And so they keep part of the money back for themselves, either to provide for their own needs down the line or so that later they can say, we've come into some more money and we can spread it out in the community and the community will think better of them for it. They didn't just sell that one piece of property. You know, they had more resources that they brought to the table for us. Saying we're going we're gonna to make our way up in this community by not really being bought into it in the first place. And Peter diagnoses exactly what's happening here with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating what he says. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? See, God protects the community, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit shows up and he says, I know that if you try and live this out, you will be in danger of being taken advantage of, but I will not leave you alone to face that danger. I will help you. I will give you wisdom and understanding. Now, we don't know if Peter, you know, went on Zillow or something and looked it up and goes, I see the sale price for that, man. You know, it's public record. I happen to know the guy who bought it from you. He paid you more than you brought. Or if the Holy Spirit was just telling Peter, Peter, this is not a good situation. They're lying to you and they're lying to me. But I think the most important part that we need to see here is that this experience, this what Ananias and Sapphira did was actually Satan's plan. When it says, uh, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? The direct parallel we find in the New Testament is Judas having his heart filled by Satan to betray Jesus. This isn't a small matter. This isn't a little thing. Satan is not happy with what's happening with the Christians in Jerusalem. And Satan decides to do something about it. Remember in last week or a couple of weeks ago when you we were talking about Peter and John and they, they heal the guy and the Sanhedrin comes and says, what do you think you're doing? And Peter and John said, are you really criticizing us for healing this guy? And they're like, no. Because they, they, they couldn't respond in any way, shape, or form because of the amazing miracle that God had done through Peter and John. So now Satan is saying, hey, I've got to do something to stop what's happening here. And so he infiltrates the community through Ananias and Sapphira. But not in a way that the Holy Spirit can't detect. 
Peter diagnoses the situation correctly. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And Ananias, when he heard this, fell down and died. This one's a little hard for me. I feel kind of like, hey, Peter, couldn't you just call them out on it? Like, give them another chance. You know, why, why does Ananias have to die? Why does Sapphira, his wife, have to die later? I don't have the answer on that one. I have, I think, some thoughtful guesses. Uh, you know, among them are things like, this is not a little thing. This is Satan actually attacking. And these are people in the community who are pretending, they are masquerading as Christ followers when really their hearts belong to Satan. Then God takes drastic action. Obviously, uh, I don't believe that Peter, you know, picked up a knife and stabbed him to death or something like that. You deserve this. But there is some sort of judgment of God that's happening here. But there's another thing that occurs. It says that Ananias hears this. He falls down and dies. And then great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Uh, when you guys come to church uh, and you, maybe you hear the message or you sing the song or, or whatever it is that's going on, do you ever get scared? Anyone here ever scared when you come to church? I'll take that as a no. We don't think of this as a place where we should get frightened, do we? We're safe in Jesus' arms. Right? He's, he loves us. He, he takes care of us. He, he's good to us. But maybe that just means that we aren't really meeting God fully. Here's why I say that. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, the, when all the people got scared, it wasn't just the people outside the community, outside of the Christian group. It was the fact that people were coming to an understanding, Christians were coming to an understanding of, this is so real. This is so real. You know, I feel like all of my life, I am finally growing to become a Christian. I, I feel like, you know, sometimes we talk about conversion, and conversion's a great thing. Like, I didn't know Jesus, and now I know Jesus, and I'm following Jesus. But I feel like as I grow in my faith, I look back, and I kind of feel like, man, I wasn't even really following Jesus back then. I mean, I, I knew him, like, this much, and now I feel like I know him this much, and you know, now I know Jesus, and now I'm following Jesus. And when that happens, there, it's not all pleasant, folks. There are times when it's not just like, oh, I feel that God loves me. It's like, I have let God down so badly. You know, with, with a growing knowledge of how much God loves me, a, there's accompanied a growing knowledge of how badly I've sinned. Both of them happen at the same time. I think you can't, you can't grow in the knowledge of one without growing in the knowledge of the other. Take the cross, right? Lent, we're focused on the cross. Jesus died for my sin. I came across this prayer that one of the Puritans wrote uh, this last week. And he was saying, it's only in the cross that I finally start to see and understand just how bad my sin is. The only innocent man who ever lived. 
put up on the cross, the nails through his feet, the nails through his hand, a crown of thorns jammed onto his head, blood streaming down. You know, we've lost something in some ways in, in the 21st century. In, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, remember the people when they came to worship, they'd bring a sacrifice. And we, we casually say things like, there's a song, which it's not a bad song, but we, it says, We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Anyone know that song? It doesn't matter if you know that song. But we bring the sacrifice of praise. Yeah, it sounds like a big sacrifice, doesn't it? That really cost you something. God, you're so great. You know, and then we just go about unchanged the rest of our lives. But the Old Testament believers, they brought an animal that was part of their wealth. They took it to the temple. They killed it. And they drained all the blood out of it. There was blood everywhere in the temple. When they went to purify the, the altar itself, they'd take blood from the animals and they'd put it all over the altar to make it clean. There were different parts during the, the worship here where the priest, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he'd flick it on the people standing out there. And we've got a really clean way of worshiping, don't we? I am not bringing blood to church to flick on anybody. <laughs> but if we are really growing in our faith, we're not only growing in the knowledge that, oh, God loves me and he's so good and he's so great. We are growing in the knowledge of how deeply I needed a Savior and how much it cost God to save me. It wasn't free. It's free for me, but it wasn't free for God. There was blood everywhere. That's how much it cost. See, the fear of the Lord really is the beginning of wisdom. Because otherwise, we've only got half the story. Now, the good news is the half of the story we know enables us to live in the fear of the Lord without always living in fear, if that makes sense. We know that God gave his son for us, not because of how much he hated sin, but because of how much he loved us. But folks, wouldn't it be strange if we came into his presence and recognized all that he had given and sacrificed for me, for you, because our sin was so bad, it required the life of his only son. And we weren't just a little bit afraid. Wouldn't that be strange? Hey, God, thanks for sending Jesus. That was really neat. Just as much as part of our experience is, oh, God, thank you for saving me in Jesus. It's, oh, God, how could you save me when that's how much it cost? And we hold those together. And so to speak, we... We turn the volume up on one or the other depending on what's happening in our lives and what we need to hear. Uh, how many of you had parents who would punish you if you did things that were wrong? Anybody here? Yeah. Now, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes parents are more skilled at punishment than they should be. And I want to be careful not only to acknowledge that, 
but to remind you that God is not someone who punishes because he loves punishment. But let me also ask you this. Did a little bit of healthy fear creep into your life that changed your behavior for the better? Because you knew if you got caught, you'd be in trouble. Wouldn't it be strange if we thought, I should never be afraid of God who teaches me how to live right because I'm living wrong? That's, that's a pretty small and flawed view of God. And when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in front of Peter for the sin that they had committed, which, and, you know, maybe here is something that's helpful too. Uh, we are all under the sentence of death every one of us, and the only reason we don't die is because of the grace of God, right? Jesus didn't die for the bad sins only. He died for all of our sins. That means that we all are under, it's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We are dead men and women walking until Jesus saves us. And if God should give death to somebody at any moment, he is just in doing so. But I want you to imagine how this community changed when they saw the sacrifice performed right in front of them. When they saw Ananias and Sapphira not have that sentence of death suspended, but rather enforced. I want you to think about whether or not that made this community a better community or a worse community when they understood someone will really hold us accountable for loving each other in this way, for being the community that God has called us to be. And I want you to think, what would the price be if God allowed Satan into the hearts of the people in our community without ever casting him out in one way or another? That's ultimately what this passage is about. Satan doesn't win. And the church continues to grow. Satan tries to come in through the inside. Right? He sends in a double agent in Ananias and Sapphira. But God preserves his community. He keeps the people in who are really part of it. And he demonstrates who's really not a part of it. Now, last thing before I close here. Uh, I want us to walk out with some fear of the Lord this morning because it's the beginning of wisdom because that's what God does. But I don't want us to walk out defined by fear either because that's not necessary. You see, uh, Peter, the leader of the church, don't forget his past either. Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times after promising he would never do it. Peter is the one who later on after this incident will start giving in to people who say, you can't just believe in Jesus. You have to keep the law as well. You got to be Jews as well. And Paul will call him out. Paul records this in one of his letters. Even Peter got carried away. And he was telling everyone, oh, yeah, you totally need to be circumcised and don't eat with the Gentiles. You know, even if they love Jesus, they're still pretty gross. And Paul went up to him and said, you can't do this. You know 
that Jesus came to rescue you exactly from this. And Peter repented and followed Jesus again. See, the pattern of God's work in the church is not, who do I kill today who's being a bad influence, but who do I preserve and save today? You are here because God loves you and is calling you to himself in Jesus Christ. Let's be fearful, remembering that God will sometimes use the stick and not just the carrot. Let's be fearful, remembering that God is God and we are human creatures. We are not in control. We are not in charge. and We don't make the rules. But let's not be defined by fear in thinking God is going to strike me down any moment. Because just as the cross was bloody, it's also the place where his blood makes us clean. Though you were, your sins were red as scarlet, they will be white as snow.